back, folks. Uh, this is Greg Silberman, your uh, resident chief investment officer for another session of CIOs and bow ties. I'm not unfortunately wearing my bow tie today, but nonetheless, I have uh, Mr. Brian Adams on the line with me. And Brian, that's the last time I'm going to even mention anything about your name because I'm sure you're sick and tired of, of hearing about that. But uh -huh. let me tell you, let me tell you about uh, Brian Adams a little bit. Uh, he's the president and founder of Excelsior Capital where he spearheads the investor relations and capital market arms of the firm. He has 10 years of experience in real estate, private equity, and his advanced knowledge and best practices for strategic real estate investing. So welcome to CIOs and Bowties, Brian. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. And you're, you're located in Nashville, right? We established that, the wonderful town of Nashville. Yes, sir. I'm from New York originally, but I've been in Nashville 15 years. My wife is a native, so I, that's how I got down here. Excellent. Mm -hmm. yeah, so from a real estate perspective, you've probably seen an, an, an incredible boom up there in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really become over the last, I'd say, 25 years, a, a tertiary market to a, a tier one gateway market in many ways it's it's very much an institutional real estate market now is that right yeah mm -hmm. yeah i know a few family offices up there it seems to be a well well healed town for family offices but anyway brian tell me a little bit about your uh, your affinity for real estate you know i come across many real estate guys and it's just in the blood somehow or another so tell me you know how you your affinity your interest in in the space yeah it, it's it started so i'm a recovering attorney so i've I, professionally trained as a lawyer. And then when I moved to Nashville, I had the opportunity to attend um, a, a class called Launching the Venture taught by Michael Bertram, who's an adjunct professor at Owen, the business school at Vanderbilt. And the first day of school or the class, he said, if you go to you know the Forbes 400 and you take away all the people who inherited money or married money, you've got three buckets left. One would be people that worked at a corporate gig, got those stock options. Those stock options became very valuable over time. The other one would be you've got a great idea in a garage. So think Google, Microsoft, Apple, etc. And the third would be real assets, be they oil and gas, commodities, timber, real assets for the most part. And I thought, well, that's probably the smartest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, and so I started having coffee with all those different people in Nashville. And I quickly realized that corporate life was not for me. It was too much like the white law, law firm, white shoe law firm experience that I'd had earlier. I didn't have a great idea. And then I met with a bunch of real estate people and I realized it's a very inefficient market, low barrier to entry. And if I can just build a better mousetrap, I think I can carve out a pretty good niche. And that's initially how I got into the business. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. I'm from Joburg originally, as we, we discussed. And so everything to me looks like a mine everything looks like a gold mine so i i have that affinity but mm -hmm. i haven't been that lucky because and like real estate you know gold has had its uh, up, ups and downs um so that said tell us well tell me tell us the audience a little bit about your your current setup the current operations where your focus is and then we'll just dive into the asset class after that Sure. So I'll, I'll give kind of a quick background from New York. Originally met my wife in college. She's from Nashville. Her family has a family office here and had invested in commercial real estate, private equity, venture capital, et cetera, for a long time. So I was very fortunate to have 
the ability to learn from our CIO and my father-in-law and meet great sponsors and, and fund managers early on in my career and started the business 11 years ago. And we initially were raising small blind pool funds. Um, that was suboptimal, it turns out, from our LP base. About four years ago, I started a next iteration of the firm after recapitalizing our legacy portfolio. And today we are a what would be called a pure play syndication platform. We are a fundless sponsor raising deal by deal from a network of high net worth individuals, families. So all accredited, but no institutional money. So no private equity groups, no allocator funds, et cetera. And mostly focused on the Southeast with a with a huge bias towards Texas and Florida. And this is predominantly light industrial or flex commercial properties. Okay. Uh, so let, let's get into that. So just really briefly break down light industrial and flex commercial for us and tell us the state of those markets as we speak right now, because truthfully, it's been a hell of a bull run in that space, notwithstanding the fact that we've been in this 30-year bull market for interest rates, right? Interest rates have gone down. So we'll, we'll handle that later. Tell us, define those markets for us and tell us the state of play in those markets, please. Yeah, so the, the way that I describe light industrial flex is, <laughs> I call it the mullet of commercial real estate, where it's business in the front, you've got office, retail, some kind of forward-facing, client-facing functionality, and then it's, it's a party in the back. So you've got... <laughs> industrial distribution warehouse. It may not be heated and cooled. It, it may or may not have full dock doors, but that kind of ugly looking properties near airports where um, people typically come across these, that's our, that's our asset class that we like. Um, right. And it's more about the, uh, the, the lessons we've learned over the years and, and why we like that product type. Obviously, I could throw a bunch of buzzwords at you like last mile distribution, um, e-commerce, et cetera. But the reality is um, they're fairly cheap spaces. They're single story. They don't have a lot of common area. Um, so they don't have elevators. The only thing we need to really worry about from a CapEx deferred maintenance perspective would be roof and foundation because they're separately metered. They're triple net. They're multi-tenant, so we don't have to worry about HVAC or utilities. So there's a lot of things that we like about it from an investment perspective. And given everything going on, they're oftentimes a much cheaper option for a traditional office user to go into. So um, that might be a nice segue into what we're seeing in the market today as well. So let me just unpack that one more time. Sure. When I think of you know the flex property near the airport and Atlanta, Hartsfield, you know, there are literally thousands of those properties around airport areas and Savannah by the ports and stuff. Um, I think of somebody who's, you know, they use the front, the, the front office merely as kind of the operation side for the, for the back office. We're not talking about kind of a retail office space or anything like that. Right. Well, it's highly variable. I mean, we have about $275 million worth of real estate today under management and, we do have folks who, um, an HVAC company would be a good example, right? So mm -hmm. they need proper offices. They have administrative staff. They have financial uh, folks. They've got salespeople that have cubicles or have offices in the front, but then they need a place to store their equipment and their mm -hmm. vehicles. And we use that in the back. So that would be an example of a client probably doesn't go there necessarily. But then we also have increasingly seen a lot of medical users come in. So dialysis clinics or um, 
uh, rehabilitation folks where, again, they need that front office. Maybe people do go there. It needs to look decent, but then they have a gym space or something in the back. So, I mean, that's, you know, to be cliche, that's why it's flexible. And that's why a lot of people like it. Um, so we've seen all kinds. Um, I would say the former kind of an HVAC distribution uh, user is more common, but I mean, we have churches, <laughs> we have all kinds of different users in there. Um, okay. So it, yeah, it's interesting. All right. So um, again, just to repeat what I said earlier, we've gone through this tremendous bull market and in interest rates, which has been good for the entire leveraged real estate sector. And we've got this, you know, last, I can't remember the term used, but that kind of last mile delivery term, which has also been incredibly supportive to that kind of properties. Where are we now in the cycle, in your opinion? So I don't think there are cycles anymore that there used to be. I okay. think I think the White House has realized or Washington has realized that they can use their bully pulpit to push the Fed around and make sure that we don't have prolonged recessions any longer. And I think that impacts the real estate cycle as well. Mm-hmm. So there will be moments like there were the last three months where there's a bit of a pullback and a pause but i don't think and this could be long term this could be very negative for the world because it could mean that there are huge drawdowns but i just don't think we're having these natural 10-year cycles any longer um and you know we'll see right i mean i'm prognosticating so it's a pretty dangerous place to be yeah 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 yeah. um but we've been in a persistently low interest rate environment for so long which has meant that anything that has tangible value, like real assets, they've all benefited over the last 10, 20 years. Um, we're recording this in August of 2022. Actually, the Fed is meeting in Jacksonville this, today. And so we're going to yeah. see what, what what they say. But, you know, we've been in for the first time um, a hawkish interest rate environment where they progressively raise rates. Raising rates are, for the most part, negative towards our business because our borrowing costs go up, which means our cost of capital goes up, which impacts investor returns. Um, So relative to what's happened in the stock market and the public markets and where bonds have been, I still think real assets are a great place to be long term. Um, You know, the adage that that we say in in uncertain times, we hearken back to the multi-generational European families, which had that adage of a third, a third, a third, real assets, art, and gold. I think there are modern corollaries there, but I think the concept that you don't want to be all in on fiat currency, you don't want yeah. to be all in on you know, companies, that you need some kind of diversification for these type of times, I think it rings true right now. Yeah, I mean, touche, I, you know, I agree almost entirely with what you said, um, you know, this this idea of transitory inflation, I don't know if I'm kind of buying into that necessarily. Um, and so kind of, the, we'll leave the macro in a second, but I think a well-worn exit path for, for folks in your space have been recaps or refis, right? How does the refi market look when interest rates are, are commensurate commensurately higher than they have been before? It's a great question. And and so what we've seen is previously, given where interest rates were and where cap rates were, there were a lot of just great arbitrage opportunities. Mm. You you could go in, you you could buy something at a six cap or a seven cap, you could put 4% debt on it and you could capture that delta, Mm. lever it up and put out a nice yield. 
obviously those days are largely gone. Those cushions are gone and lenders are sharpening their pencils quite a bit. And so now is the time for value add opportunities for good operators to, to show their chops because to your point, just that easy refinancings are gone, right? The, the Fed is purposely trying to slow activity down by bringing rates up from zero. So what we've seen and what we started identifying are chances where we can actually improve NOI significantly. And then the refinancings can still work, but it, it can no longer be purely financial engineering. You need to have some type of proper asset management, some type of investment thesis and execution. Awesome. Awesome. That's a great segue to my next point. So um, tell me about, so so now we're talking about the your micro uh, universe, right? And I suspect that's impacted by demographics and specific industries around areas and stuff. So, so tell me a little bit more about the, the trends in those micro factors, if you will. Right. The, the old bromide is that demographics are destiny, especially in commercial real estate. So you now have the largest working generational cohort in American history of millennials entering into a phase of life where they're making choices about where they want to live, work, and play mm -hmm. based on cost of living, quality of life, and access to education for their children. The Great Recession pushed back that phase a number of years. And so a lot of people thought, oh, they'd never get there. But even pre-COVID, it was happening. COVID was just an accelerator. And so they're relocating to tax and business-friendly locations across the Sunbelt, right? And we're yeah. seeing that play out in real time in markets across Texas, Florida, Tennessee, you yeah, know, areas, yeah. and Atlanta is a great example as well, right? And so this great migration, it lifts all asset classes. It can be retail, residential, commercial. It's just good for everybody when, when population, wage growth, and job growth are occurring in these markets. And so we've taken this macro thesis and we've kind of taken it down a few notches and been a bit more sharpshooter where we're looking at sub $10 million assets in secondary and tertiary markets. So think Tallahassee, Florida, mm -hmm. the, the outer suburbs of Dallas. Um, we've been focused on those type of markets and those type of opportunities. And so far it's worked really well. So what would you say, I'm kind of jumping ahead to the end, I guess, but I'm curious about your answer. What would you say to, you know, a new hand investor coming to you in the space and he's going to say to you, Brian, man, I've missed out on so many good returns now for so many years. Is, you know, is this still a good time for me to, to dip my toe in the water on private real estate? My answer would be similar to what one of these wirehouse stockbrokers tell you, you know, you can't time this market. Mm -hmm. You need to think about, you know, dollar cost averaging into it. And so the way that I've told most new investors is come up with an allocation that you want to put into real assets and, and whatever that number is, try to divide it into the smallest number of minimums that you can to diversify across a number of assets. And just every year, don't try to pick winners, just try to deploy consistently. And then over time, you'll build up a decent allocation across different sponsors, different food groups, different asset classes. And you'll very quickly realize, I don't have the stomach for development. Man, Core Plus is not giving me the returns that I want here, et cetera, et cetera. You'll learn really quickly, but you can't benefit unless you are in the game. And so yeah. I would just advocate, come up with an allocation that you feel comfortable with. Don't think too hard about it. I mean, obviously do your vetting and your diligence, but you need to start deploying to get there. Yeah, no, I'd agree. The, the old adage is... Um... 
don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, it's in America, it's gone up on average 3% a year over the last 150 years. Right. Obviously, there's there's volatility there, but you know, it's been barely consistent if you have a long enough time horizon long on it. Time horizon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to switch things around a little bit. So I know you said that your investors are predominantly high net worth family officers. So I assume most of them are taxable investors. And if you would, I know I know the audience is a pretty sophisticated audience, and so they're well worn on the tax benefits and whatnot. But to, if you wouldn't mind, just at a high level, just talk to us about how important the real estate tax benefits are in your investment performance. So the Wall Street guys will say, don't fight the Fed when you talk about investing. And, and my response is, well, you should not fight the IRS. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the tax code, in America, it's a series of incentives and disincentives to encourage or discourage certain behavior. Yep. And when you when you look at it holistically, it's very much telling you, get married, have children, own your own home, and invest in commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. When you look at cost segregation analysis, bonus depreciation, it, it's one of the best tax efficient ways that you can invest and allocate capital today. Maybe um, if you wouldn't mind, just again, just for newer listeners, sure. just talk about cost segregation and bonus depreciation, just at a very high level, because I know yep. we can go nuts on that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So with the caveat that I got a C in basic federal income tax at law school, um, <laughs> and we have a COO and a controller in-house who are both CPAs of public accounting tax backgrounds, that they're better suited. But so basically what this means is you can depreciate any asset over a 37 and a half year lifetime for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, under the under the Trump Tax Act, you can accelerate that depreciation under a bonus depreciation schedule where you can capture that depreciation, the majority of it in the first number of years that you own a real asset. It could be a plane, it could be a building, it could be equipment, etc. And so what you do is you hire a third-party engineering firm, they go into the property and they put together a schedule and evaluation of every fixture, so something that if it were taken away from the building would cause harm or damage, and they assign a value to that structure, to that fixture. Mm -hmm. And they put that all together, they put together a depreciation schedule, and essentially what it means is if you were to invest into a real property and your sponsor GP does this depreciation, you'll show a loss on your K-1 or right. you know, a significant loss in your K-1 that you can offset gains elsewhere that you have in your portfolio. So for a taxable investor, if I'm giving you a 10% annualized yield plus the tax losses that you can harvest mm -hmm. gains elsewhere, it's a very powerful tool that has a double or triple line impact on your return. Yeah, indeed. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Now, you've also um, been able to, I'll just call it capitalize not only on the real estate cycle, if there is indeed a, still a real estate cycle, but you've been able to capitalize, let's just say, on the, um, you know, the uh, loss of the middleman, the 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 syndic the power of networking for syndication. So, so tell me about your platform today. How does that work? I'm a new investor coming to you. You know, how, how does your platform work? Yeah, it was really brought about to solve a problem that I saw in the marketplace, which is roughly 13.3 million accredited investors in America today. That number moves around a little bit, but it's mm -hmm. grown fairly dramatically. 
Less than 3% today have exposure to private investments or private equity or alternative and whatever you want to name you want to put on it. Okay. So a huge, a huge audience, a very inefficient market. Typically, you know, over the last 25, 50 years, Wall Street has built up a moat around most of these private equity opportunities, and they've created friction costs or fee structures to give people access to these type of investments and these type of returns. What happened with initially the Jobs Act and then social media and some of these other initiatives now mean that these accredited investors can find people like me directly, cut out that intermediary where they're not paying a fee or a cost um, to gain access, and they can come directly to me. And so we have a network of individuals and families where we find them either through a podcast like this, through our LinkedIn efforts, we do a lot of uh, content creation, creating blogs, webinars to try to teach people, educate them. We have a community of investors that are like-minded. They have an affinity towards private investments. And with technology, we now have lower investment minimums um, to give people the opportunity to kind of dip their toe in the water. And all of these things we've been working on for the last four years have really come to fruition now. And it's, it's become a, a great business and uh, we have just terrific investors. That's awesome, man. I, I've come across uh, a few platforms, I think none of which is, you know, of your size and um, kind of reach. So that's kudos to you guys. That's that's terrific. And I've seen that happen. Well, what, what you often see in the space is, um, especially real estate people, especially guys, start getting into a square footage game or an AUA, AUM game where they want to go to the club and say, oh, I've got bigger portfolio than you do, which I think is a, a trap and a bad game to play. Um, I'd much rather be very focused on the type of investors that I want to service, that I want to work with, and just give them a product that solves a problem in their life, right? And that problem is access, affordability, and return, right? They're looking for yield. They don't have the ability to access these opportunities very often. And um, so once I thought about the business as being a solution set to a very discrete investor base, it really changed the way that we were able to grow and scale efficiently. Yeah, no, that's, that's smart. So you mentioned something earlier. Let's just dive into this. So right. So just understanding how you operate then. Um, do you find a project and then raise funds for that project off of the syndicate? Or do you have, you know, kind of blind pools that you've raised or you have both? Or how, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and one that investors should, should ask. So we are what's termed in our business a sponsor operator. So we're actually sourcing these deals ourselves. We are raising the capital ourselves and then we're managing that asset, which you often times find in this business, there are groups that are allocators. So all they do is raise money and then they find someone like me, they help fund my deal, but then I'm running it. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that model, but you are getting double feed typically. And so we've kind of cut out that we go direct to our investors and, and we find the opportunities ourselves. And so these are just one-off syndications or just deal by deal. So an investor would only be coming in on one certain property in Dallas, Texas, or Orlando, Florida. There's no cross-collateralization or exposure to any other properties within the portfolio. And I'm sure there is always a little bit of a, how should I say this, a little bit of an incentive on your side to 
or even for an investor who says, hey, Brian, I love what you do. I came on on deal five, six, and seven. Why don't you just, you know, here's some money. Why don't you just allocate it for me? I mean, that would be kind of the next iteration of what you do, or are you specifically staying away from, you know, kind of a, a blind pool situation again? Yeah, I mean, we've we've been in the fund business previously, and I think it's got a lot of pros. But I think for high net worth individuals, even ultra high net worth individuals and families, for real estate, a fund is a suboptimal vehicle to access these opportunities. Um, it the capital call structure can be confusing. The return structure can be confusing, and also running a fund is a business in and of itself. Oh yes. And, and I, I think it's very difficult as a GP sponsor of a fund, someone who's running one of these vehicles, you typically get paid on deployed capital. So you have an incentive to put that money to work. And then you're always out there raising the next fund, mm-hmm. which means you're not necessarily working on the business itself or the yeah, opportunities. Yeah. Now, having having discretionary capital is a wonderful thing. And when you look at it from that perspective, what we do is a little crazy because we go at risk every deal. But I just think it's not what investors want for this asset class. I think for venture capital, private equity, other types of, of, of food products, it makes a ton of sense. But for real estate, I think most people have owned a home. Most people understand it's not a very complex asset class. Right. And so I think people can get really comfortable and they want the opportunity to go allocate when the timing is right, when the return profile is right, they don't necessarily want to go into a blind pool for these yeah. types of deals. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I agree with that. So I understand the co-investment structure because I believe this is a co-investment situation that would work well for, let's say, a family office or, or something like that. How, if, if for those wealth management companies that are listening to this who really have, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, X hundred clients and they're clearing through Schwab or Fidelity or something like that. And they're going, well, I'd love to offer this to my clients. How do they kind of, you know, hitch their wagon to you guys? How, how does that happen? Like from a infrastructure point of view? Yeah. RIAs and multifamily offices are the largest growing sector of the wealth management right. uh, world. And I think you'll see with this baby boomer to millennial transition, you'll see that accelerate pretty dramatically, in my opinion, moving forward. So we do work with a handful, not many. Um, The challenge is if you came from a wirehouse and you spun out of that group, you're often used to just having proprietary internal product that you pitch to your investors. So you don't necessarily have an alternative asset uh, background. You don't have a research team. It can be very confusing, right? There's a lot of me on LinkedIn all pitching different things. And mm-hmm. it's a lot of work to separate the weed from the chaff. Where we've seen it done really well is an RIA will um, create an internal fund where they'll say, hey, this is going to be a yield fund. We're going to raise capital into an internal GP, LP, limited partnership. And then they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, please put us on the distribution list. We're looking to allocate a million dollars this year into yield real estate, and we'll we'll do you know a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand dollars in any given deal, and that is our discretionary capital. What happens oftentimes where it's really challenging is if you don't have some type of team or internal fund, many of them will just pass the hat. And for a sponsor like me, yeah, that's the, very very time five hundred subscription documents. It's something. very time consuming, and mm-hmm. and again. 
I can't just wait around forever, right? I mean, I've got to be able to raise the money so that I can close the deal. Right. And so um, you've got to have a very tight process and, and they're getting better for the most part. I've seen groups really, really tackle this in the right way. But those are the two typical business profiles. Now, what I've also seen are some of these groups have a kind of a separately based account relationship with their bigger clients and will kind of get elevated to a certain relationship manager that has the ability to say, hey, pencil me in for a million dollars in this opportunity. Right. It's more of the multifamily office yeah. I think, client, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Great, great. Yeah, I mean, again, that's another trend that I think you've successfully um, hitched your wagon to, so that's great. Tell me about, um, just stepping back to the actual asset class itself, what, how do you think about what, you know, how, how are you thinking about where your future returns are, are going to come from? What kind of markets do you look at? Are you, are you staying with, you know, sticking to your knitting? Are you probably, are you going to look internationally? Are you looking at different property types? You know, what, what's your prognostication crystal ball saying? Yeah. Style drift is a very dangerous thing in our business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to stick to our knitting. We like this product type. We like, these markets, I think we'll go to new markets within those states, right? So, um, you know, we're very open. We're doing something in Houston, Texas for the first time. Uh, we went to El Paso, Texas recently, Tallahassee, Florida, Fort Myers, Florida. FSU, baby. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter's at FSU. Oh, yeah. It's a great market. I mean, not to do the pitch because we already did the deal, but I love markets where they have the eds and the meds, right? So you've got that anchor of ed- education, and then you've also got healthcare, and it's also a, a state capital. So those are all counter-cyclical, great, lawyers, huh? resilient industries. That <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's been knocking with a great deal for us down there. Um, so I think we'll stick to our knitting. I, I do think it's going to be continue to be very competitive. And what we're seeing now, it, the dynamic in the space is we've gone down market in terms of deal size. So if I were to come on the show a year or two ago, I'd say, oh, 15 million, $20 million acquisitions. We are very much sub $10 million today, where I think you can still find value. The challenge is the seller population for those type of properties can be very difficult to work with because they're typically not real estate professionals. Right. So there's a lot of brain damage associated with getting those deals over the finish line. It's a lot of handholding. So, you know, that the cliche of real estate. $100 million deal is as much work as a $10 million deal is true, but there is a value proposition, right? And the, the return profile and metrics are very different when you go down market. And so I think we'll continue to do sub 10 million. We have a bias towards value add right now, given where interest rates are. Um, the biggest challenge right now is the debt markets. Um, CMBS, given the 10-year volatility, CMBS is essentially non-functioning. Life companies are being very conservative. And so we've had to start going to banks and credit unions and, um, you know, they're worried about a recession and they're, they're very risk off. And so there is a huge population of sellers that they lived through a great recession. They lived through COVID. They don't want to do a third act of the play. They want to transact. Mm-hmm. A lot of investors don't like the volatility of the market. Bonds are not giving what they want. So they do want allocation. But the execution part is the most challenging thing right now. Interesting. So a few takeaways from that. Um, I assume I assume you've got to kiss a lot of frogs in, in your business, especially when you're going down market. Sorry. 
get rid of that. Go away. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, um, the second thing is, oh gosh, I'm getting distracted. Yeah. So that's the first thing, kiss a lot of frogs. And that's fine. That's your job. And you're, you're looking for alpha. So I get that. Oh, right. The, um, as, as a financial investor, let's say my RIA clients love what you do, but ultimately they don't want to be perennial holders of real estate, right? They want some kind of exit from the asset, from, you know, from the investment. Now I understand the refi and how that works financially, but how do, how, how do investors actually get an exit from some of your deals? Yeah, this is the biggest challenge for, for people investing in commercial real estate is the illiquidity, right? And and it just is what it is, unfortunately, to get those type of returns, to take on that risk premium. Refinancing and sales are are the predominant ways to get liquidity. We have done some secondary transactions, but they're time-consuming, expensive, and you're going to take a pretty bad haircut on the deal. And we help facilitate that. We have some mechanisms internally. We have some groups we work with, but it is a suboptimal way to get liquidity, in my experience and opinion. So you really need to, to understand that this should be a 10-year ride for you. And if, if you're not comfortable with that, we're, we're not the right group for you to work with and, and you're not the right investor for us. There are some in interesting things happening within the prop tech and fintech space to solve that liquidity problem. Okay. But we are we are very far this yeah. is a whole different conversation, but we're very far from those being real solutions. Hmm. No, that's interesting. I mean, listen, I've, you know, you know, we've been around for some time now in this business and I've had investors want to get out of private investments because that are doing great, but they don't want K1s or something like that anymore. You know, it's just, there are non-financial reasons that people want to want to make exits. Okay. That's very good. Um, so if people want to get hold of you, how, how would they do so? Yeah, very active on LinkedIn. So just look up Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital. Shoot me a note, shoot me a connection request. I'm happy to chat. And then the website, ExcelsiorGP.com. We have a ton of resources there. My podcast, webinars, blogs, white papers. And we have a really cool investor community where we talk about all kinds of different asset classes beyond real estate. So definitely encourage you to go to the website and check that out. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, one, uh, just going back to the exit point, uh, one way I have seen it achieved is where you guys build up a substantial portfolio and then a larger you know, financial enterprise will just come and take you out of the entire portfolio. I've seen that happen. That, that seems to work well, but it's, it's isolated. Um, well, Brian, this has been very cool. I've enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, I, I do always like to leave off with my, my podcasts with um, you know, some wealth or gem of knowledge for the younger listeners because I know they are they are out there and they're trying to get ahead I know you as you said you're a recovering attorney any tips for younger listeners as it comes to the space or career paths or anything that you could share with them that would help them any mistakes you think they can avoid yeah I mean we don't have time to go through all the mistakes that I've made but um <laughs> Well, you still have all your hair and you don't have the gray hair. So you've been fairly, fairly successful. Um, the, the big one for me would be um, if you're an aspiring entrepreneur and you've got the fire in the belly and you have a sense of urgency, I applaud you. And think really hard about whether or not you are creating a product that solves a problem to your customer. 
Because oftentimes, especially in real estate, people work really hard to create this thing that, that is a, a beautiful piece of art. And then they bring it to their investor base. They bring it to the customer and they realize it's not what they wanted. And so I would go the other way. I would spend a lot more time doing market analysis on who your customer is. And then even if it's not the most exciting thing for you, bringing them a product that solves their problems and understanding what that investor journey and experience looks like, you'll be, you'll be much more efficient at raising capital because in this business, it is a sales business. You are constantly raising capital. And so you need to keep that top of mind. That's great advice. So market fit is important and kind of sales chops is important. I always tell that to the younger folks that no matter what you're doing, you're in sales at some point, right? Whether you're selling yourself to your employer, to an investor or whatever. So that's, that's great. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you've got a pitch and you're not sure how it's going to go, take them to breakfast. It's the cheapest meal of the day. <laughs> not coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Well, Brian, thanks again for coming on board, CIOs and, and bow ties. Really like what you do and really recommend um, the audience check you out. I think it's excelsior.com, excelsiorcapital.com, I think you said, or Excelsior Group, I beg your pardon, .com. No worries. Yeah. And, thank you so um, much. And, and check you out on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining and have a wonderful day. Okay. Thank you.